Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. Um, you know what today is? It's Palm Sunday. I'm going to have to start remembering that in time to get some palm fronds for everybody to, to wave around, right? And uh, anybody do that at Sunday school when you grew up? Anybody remember having uh, waving your palm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that today. Talk about the triumphal entry. Uh, and I actually love, love preaching about Palm Sunday as much as, not as maybe as much as Christmas, but it's, uh, it's one of those things, this event, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that really does, if we see it for what it really is, and I, and I, my plan is to go short still. Uh, I originally had planned this to go very quickly because I thought everybody would be in here at once, but even though we've got uh, classes today, uh, we've got some things going on after church that I want to make sure we're getting out of here in time for, so I don't see this going more than an hour. <laughs> anyway, I want you to see this, and, and uh, I know there are other things to look at. You know, there are a thousand different Easter sermons, a thousand different Christmas sermons, a thousand different Palm Sunday sermons, perhaps. Uh, but there's, there's some core truths to this and elements that I just cannot not talk about. You know, uh, it's like I, I don't have my notes from last year or the year before, but all I'm saying is I'm going to say some of the things that I've said every Palm Sunday that I've probably ever preached because I can't wait another year. I know, well, I'll just do it again. I'll take a year off. No, no, this is, this is the day we want to talk about this. But keep just to kind of set the stage here, for three years... Jesus had been ministering, preaching, teaching, and healing all over the area, all over the region. Uh, he had spoken boldly. He had spoken fearlessly. He had spoken prophetically. He had made, made some very clear and astonishing claims. He had, uh, uh, he had I'll call it a fan club. He had disciples, uh, but he also had some hangers-on who weren't necessarily disciples, but they followed him because they liked him. They were fans. They, they enjoyed his teaching. Um, he had doubters, of course, and he had enemies. And he lived in a time and a place where people were eager to believe some things. But also remember that the Jews of Jesus' day did not need to be taught the concept of Savior. They knew what a Savior was. They knew what it meant to need salvation, uh, to need a Savior. Their history was full of examples of Saviors, uh, deliverers. And, uh, but, but they knew there would be a Savior, a capital S, a deliverer, the Christ, the Messiah. This is the deliverer that they really, the hope of Israel. They knew such a man was going to come. And uh, many of them knew. We, we talk about this often uh, as part of the Christmas message. But they knew that prophetically speaking, the time was right. They, they could do the math 
uh, from Daniel and knew that the, the, it was about the right time for this Messiah to show up. Some were actively watching for him. And in fact, the time was so right that we have testimony in the Bible that some had already shown up on the scene claiming to be the Messiah or something like the Messiah, and they'd gotten many followers. And why? Why were they so eager other than the timing? Well, they were eager because of the situation they were in. They were eager because Rome. Because for all of God's goodness to them and his history of uh, his mercy, his blessing, his keeping his promise, uh, the deliverance he had worked in their history many, many times, the problem was they still were not back on top of the world like they were in the days of David and Solomon. So Jesus is born and grows up in this atmosphere, in this environment. And he begins his public ministry about age 30. And uh, in very little time, he has got followers. And the crowds are following him, they, you know, according to the scriptures, because he taught as one having authority and not as one of the Pharisees. There was no shortage of teachers in Judea at the time. But they were, whether, you know, what it means not as one of the Pharisees, uh, contrasting that against one having authority. Does, does it just mean they were dry, that they were just reading these scriptures, uh, that they were reluctant to say anything authoritatively? I don't know. But what I like to read, when I, what I like to see when I read that statement about Jesus taught as one having authority is he taught the word like the one who wrote the word. If you want to have somebody give authoritative comment on a manuscript, the best person to talk to is the author. And Jesus Christ is the word incarnate. He, it is his word that he is teaching when he teaches the scriptures. So, of course, he taught as one having authority. He knew exactly what God meant when he wrote these things, gave them uh, to the prophets and to the scribes to be written down through the years. And... In those crowds that, that gathered to hear him teach, he did miracles. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He healed all the sick that came to him. He fed thousands of people with just a few loaves and fishes. And even the wind and the waves obeyed him. But what I want to look at is a conversation that he had with a Samaritan woman by a well in John chapter 4. They're having a conversation, and Jesus tells her some things that he knows about her, her relationships. You know, they're chatting about living water, and she says, uh, give me some of this water. And he said, oh, go get your husband. She said, I'm not married. He says, you're absolutely right, you're not married. You've been married five times, and now you're living with a guy who's not your husband. And she says in verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19, she's, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, because, and, and that's an interesting thing, because you know maybe, maybe my first conclusion, if somebody said something that I didn't expect them to know, is who have you been talking to? Uh, who do you know that I know? Who told you these things? She immediately says, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's right. She jumps to the right conclusion. And he continues to talk to her now about worship. 
the right way, the right place. You know, Samaritans and uh, the Jews did not see eye to eye on that. And he starts talking to her about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So there's an expectation there. This is one of the clearest expressions of it in the New Testament. There's an expectation that the Messiah is coming. And what does he say in the very next verse? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Skip down to verse 28. It says, The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things, all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And this is such an exciting question to me, such an exciting conversation because people had been following him because of his teaching and because of the miracles. And it's, they are not, I want you to understand this, they are not following him because there's a conviction yet that he is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Why are they following him? Because he is a great teacher and he's a miracle worker. He's a healer. But you see, you got to understand, they have had prophets. There have been miracle workers in their history. It wasn't like we've never heard or seen anything like this. Now, they've never seen it to this degree before. But this was exciting. But they did not jump to the conclusion yet that just because he's a prophet, just because he's a miracle worker, just because he's a teacher, that he must be the Messiah. Peter had that revelation, remember? He's, a, he's asking people, who do people say that I am? And they weren't saying the Messiah. They say, yeah, some say you're like one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist. And he said, who do you say that I am? Peter called it, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus himself told Peter that you had to get that from God. God himself had to reveal that to you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. So now, here's this Samaritan woman. Now, she's had this interesting conversation. He said some mysterious things about living water. You drink the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And then he casually mentioned something about her that he had no natural way of knowing. And then she alludes to the fact that Messiah's coming. He just flat out says, it's me. And then she goes back to the men in the city and says, "This is some, I just had an amazing conversation with a guy who told me things that he had no way of knowing. Could it be the Christ? Now maybe, you know, what, here's what we have that she said. Maybe she said, look, I told him. Uh, I made a reference to the Christ, and he just flat out told me he was him. Why don't you come see if it really is? Skip down to verse uh, 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Many followed him, many received his ministry, many loved him, but the lingering question was, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? 
I love the fact that many in this town believed just based on this woman's testimony. That's a powerful testimony. And again, what was it? Are there details that, 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 uh, uh, in this conversation that are not recorded here? I don't know. But there had to have been something. You know, she didn't say, hey, guess what? This guy knew I had been married five times and knew I was living with a guy that wasn't my husband. Uh, this is not going to cause somebody to go, must be the Messiah. There was something about the passion, something about her experience that had to have been radiating in this conversation that caused people to believe because many believed because of her testimony. Then they went out and saw Jesus himself, and then they were like, wow, now we don't even need to hear it from you. We've heard it from him, and he is the Christ. And look at this, the Savior of the world. If he's the Christ, this is a very big deal. He is the hope of Israel, but they had to know. People wanted, some people wanted him to be. The Pharisees, I believe, for some reason, didn't want him to be. We can, that's something we can talk about some other time. But they didn't want to miss it if it was him. The people who are paying attention to this, who are looking for a Messiah, who are longing for a Messiah, if Jesus is the Messiah, they want to know so that they can follow him. They don't want to miss it. On the other hand, if he wasn't, they didn't want to be, they didn't wind up following a fake because what's, and, and why was this such a big deal? Because eh, we can just change our minds if we find out it's not him. The reason it was such a big deal was because what's Messiah going to do? What is he there for? He's a deliverer. Well, who's he going to deliver them from? Rome, obviously. We are looking for the Messiah who is the son of David. And that means, unlikely as it looks with this ragtag band of Judeans living under the power of the Roman Empire, uh, just like David slew Goliath, the Messiah is going to lead us in a successful revolt. So if they end up following the wrong guy, it's not just a theological issue. They're going to be crushed. So they don't want to follow him if he's not the Messiah, but they don't want to not follow him if he is. So it was a big question. There was a lot riding on, is this the Christ? And his fame spread. His ministry grew. His following increased. And then finally we have what we call the triumphal entry. And it's recorded in all four Gospels. I'm going to read it out of Mark chapter 11. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this is, and this is where we get this idea and what, that we used to celebrate. And there's nothing wrong with this. But it's a very joyful scene because here is Jesus, the Messiah, the king, the legitimate king of Israel, receiving his due from his people. They are celebrating his entry into the holy city. And they're waving these branches and they're throwing them on the ground to give us his uh, cult a place to walk. And they're singing Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna. We've talked about this before. What does Hosanna mean? Save now. Oh, save. All right. 
this is this this is the moment that really gets me. When we when we look at this and the people are crying, oh save, what they are doing in this moment is saying, All right, we believe. You are the Messiah. This is their, their step of faith. We are going to give you the, the uh, glory and the honor up front even before you throw uh, Rome. We, 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 that's probably what you, we've been waiting on you. Now you're waiting on us. You're here. We are with you. Let's go. We know you're going to do it, so do it now. Save now. Oh, save. You're here. And it's not like just sneaking around following to see what he's going to do. They are throwing uh, their loyalty behind him. This is a true celebration. And even though there is this celebratory atmosphere, it's a really sad story because the ones who are shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are the same ones who days later will be shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. They were mad. They were mad at Jesus for not leading them in the overthrow of Rome, mad at themselves for being taken in, and I might add, they're being stirred up in a demonic frenzy. So on one hand, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong. And I still get a, there's a smile on my face whenever I see any little kids waving their palm branches, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, singing the song. But to think, you know, would you ever have, and then three days later, we're going to have the little kids going, crucify him, crucify him, because it's the same people. Here's the thing. Here's another thing, since I've already said here's the thing, right? Uh, Wednesday night, we looked at Psalm 51. You don't need to turn there now. But here are some phrases that show up in Psalm 51, and some of them are used more than once. Psalm 51, for those of you who weren't weren't here Wednesday and, and don't know or don't remember, Psalm 51 is David's prayer after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet about the sin of Bathsheba. And he, you know, he committed adultery with another man's wife and then had uh, the man, had the husband murdered to cover up his sin. Nathan confronted him, which again, very bold and brave move for a prophet because that's a good way to wind up in the dungeon back in the day. But David's response was to write Psalm 51, which is the most beautiful prayer of repentance in the Bible. And here are some phrases. Have mercy, blot out, purge me, wash me, create in me a clean heart, restore, uphold me, deliver me. All in a relatively short psalm. And again, some of these phrases are repeated. What's he crying out for? Forgiveness, cleansing, a change, a transformation, deliverance. And Jesus the son of David is answering that prayer for deliverance, salvation, cleansing for all of Israel and all of the world. Here's the connection. There are many people who still cry out to Jesus. And I can remember a conversation I had with Sean Brown a number of years ago. Sorry to put you on the spot, Sean. But we had, we had lunch, this was many, many years ago, and uh, it was after he had come back to the Lord after some time in the wilderness. 
And we were, what we were talking about was what was it that, what was the motivation? What brought him back? And it, uh, we talked about it for a little bit, but it also I just uh, began to think about that and meditate on it. And thinking about the things, what is it that causes people to turn to Christ in the first place? Now, we know, theologically, you know, Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. But he also said, no man comes to me except the Father draw him. We know it's the Holy Spirit at work in all of this, okay? But we can all point in our own lives, those of us who have made a confession of faith in Christ, we can point to something that, from our perspective anyway, is the thing that drew us to Christ, right? What was it that brought you to your knees? What was it that brought you to the point of decision? And, it's, and the answer is, there's not a right answer, okay? I mean, there kind of is, but what I'm saying is, we look at the circumstances in our life, and what it was that got us to cry out to Jesus, for many people it was depression. They were crying out for relief from depression, from failure. Lord, I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. Help me turn my life around. Sickness. Many people have come to Christ in times of sickness because they, they become aware of their mortality. Uh, some people look at their life and they struggle with the meaninglessness of it all. It's an existential struggle. What is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? And, when, and suddenly they can see, ah, there is meaning in Jesus. There is meaning when I connect with the Creator. Some people are drawn simply to the community of the church, a community of believers. This is somebody, this is a place where I can belong. People who don't have a family find a family with God the Father and with the brothers and sisters. I have seen people come to Christ, I've personally seen people come to Christ for every one of those and many more. So they cry out to Jesus, and what they're essentially crying out in that moment is, save me from my depression. Save me from my loneliness. Rescue me. Deliver me from my failure, from meaninglessness. Save me. But after the dust settles, maybe they learn that Jesus is saving them, not just from their sickness, and not just from their depression, but from some, some things that they are in no hurry to be free from. Because what the Jews were crying out when they cried out, Oh, save, save now, Hosanna in the highest, was not what David was crying out in Psalm 51. They were not crying out, Oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us from our sin." No. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us from the Romans. We're all right other than that. We look at what we think is wrong with us, and that's what we want saved from. And Jesus says, just say, save me, and I'll save you. But I'm saving you from a lot more than that. I'm going to save you from worldliness. I'm going to save you from idolatry. I'm going to save you from sin. You see, God does love you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. And he does desire to heal you. He desires to protect you, to abundantly provide for you. There is no getting around the wonderful promises that God makes. 
But what Jesus died for was to save you from sin. We must recognize that the problem Jesus comes to solve is not our outward circumstances. The problem he comes to solve is our problem. It's us. And that's why Psalm 51 and other places, of course, in Scripture are are good places to meditate because it reminds us that this is what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me? David, David's problem was not... Imagine how ridiculous it would be to say, oh, Lord, deliver me. Nathan the prophet is saying some bad, bad things that really depress me, and I don't want to hear them anymore. Now, David did. He wrote psalms where it's like, deliver me from my enemies. I'm being persecuted on all sides, but he's putting his faith in God. But in this case, wouldn't it have been ridiculous if David, if from David's perspective, the problem was, I'm hearing all these horrible things, and I feel terrible when Nathan says them. Can you, I think the problem, Lord, is you just need to stop up my ears or, or, or turn him into a, a, a mute so that I don't hear these horrible things from Nathan anymore. No, David knew what the problem was. He was sin sick. He said, and he admitted it. Now I was born a sinner. I was conceived in sin. My sin is ever before me. I can't clean it up, but God, you can. Cleanse me from my sin. Blot out my transgression. Turn your face from these things. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. He knew exactly what the solution was. And here we are living in a day where the work has been done, where Jesus absolutely creates in us a clean heart. And, but that needs to be our cry. And we need to be willing, when we cry out to God for salvation, we need to be willing to look Listen to God speaking to us, because here's the thing. If we come to him for salvation from failure, salvation from depression, healing from a sickness, and he heals us and he delivers us, the question then becomes, what is going to keep me connected to him? Because once, if I came to him because of a severe need, and then that need is met, what's holding me on? to this because now I'm going to be confronted with some things. If I'm in a body, if I'm coming to church, I'm going to hear some things that might go against the normal grain of my thinking. What holds us? What holds us? What's supposed to hold us is truth. Ultimately, that's the thing that we should be responding to. Why did they worship Jesus? Why did they ult- did people, when, when all this was over, and the resurrection, which, spoiler alert, that's what, that's what we'll talk about next week. What they responded to, and the reason they were willing to lay down their lives. Now, let me back up. we got a couple minutes here, although I am about done. Uh, when you look at what the, the apostles and the disciples, so many in the early church, laid down their life for, But let me ask you, was Paul's life a meaningful life? Was it full of purpose? Absolutely. Uh, Paul, now keep in mind, spent a lot of time in prison, but was his life a joyful life? Yeah, it was. God provided for him. He's the one who literally wrote the book on, uh, you know, rejoicing in the Lord, even in, in, in every circumstances. When he got to the end of his life, he was satisfied. I have fought the good fight. That's where you want to be. You want to have run your race. 
He was satisfied. But he was executed, as were most of the disciples and many in the early church. It's not rescue from a disease or rescue from meaninglessness or any of that in and of itself that's going to, that's going to allow you to stay committed to that level. I've seen people leave Christianity over much, much less than the threat of death. And we want to say, oh, Lord, I'll be loyal to you forever. I'll never turn my back on you. And then we'll turn around and speak ill of somebody else in the church or of the church or of Christianity as a whole, the church as a whole. I don't mean just this church. You know, I get so, you've heard me go on rants about particular authors who just, I think they, they think they're being edgy by saying, oh, we really love Jesus. We want you to love Jesus. But we understand how the church has let you down. The church lets everybody down. And they basically try to boost their own reputation by throwing the church under the bus. When the fact is, what we are moving toward little by little in, the, in the Christian society is let's don't deal with sin at all. Let's just talk about how God wants to heal your broken heart, hold you in his arms, and love you. And any parent can relate to that. Can you really stand up here for a second, Riley? Can you believe this kid? One of my favorite things to do, and it seems like yesterday, used to be to hold this kid, carry him, lie down with him, hold him in my arms. We can't sit on the same piece of furniture anymore. But Beth could tell you I was a baby hog. I wanted just to hold him and love him, tell him how much I love him, shower him with kisses and hugs, and he loved it too. But you know what else I did from a very early time? I spanked him. I spared not the rod. Let me give you an example. Come up here, right? But wait a second. That's not love. That's discipline. No, discipline is love. And because I love my son, we talk about hard things, or at least I do. Kind of hard to drag him into the conversation sometimes. See some things. Riley, I'm concerned about this. And believe it or not, I really do remember what it was like to be 14. Here's what was going through my mind. Can you tell me? Is this what's going through your mind? Are these some of the things you're wrestling with? I don't want to ignore these things. They need to be talked about. They need to be dealt with. But that's what God does too. We can't just say, well, the only right way to present God to the sinner, to a lost, they need to know that he just loves them. And there are people, that's absolutely, man, if we don't start there, we're never going to win them because they feel so beat up. they beat up by the devil, beat up by the church, beat up, they feel beat up by God and they're not. They do need to know that God loves them. But if we don't uh, declare the, the whole counsel of God, we're not doing anybody, them, us, the church, or God, any favors. Because sooner or later, they will leave. Truth will ultimately offend them. And Jesus did that too. You know, Jesus never hesitated to call a sinner a sinner. I love how that gets skipped over. Oh, Jesus was just, Jesus said, do not judge. Jesus was just so merciful. Yes, he was merciful. 
But he made it clear that he was showing mercy because he was in a position of authority to do it. He didn't say, don't let anybody look down their nose at you and call you a sinner. God loves you. No, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. That is a loving statement. It's a merciful statement. It's also a judgmental statement because you just called somebody a sinner, called their actions a sin. And the Jews were, had their eyes and their, their awareness so full of Rome, and they were in a bad position politically. But since they saw themselves as the victim, they refused to see themselves, could not see themselves as the real problem. And when they cried out, Hosanna, save now, save us from Rome, Jesus is like, oh, I'm here to save you, all right. I'm saving you from something much bigger. I'm here to save you from a much worse enemy. And here's the thing. He was on his way, on this triumphal entry, on his way to answer that prayer. And when they abandoned him just days later saying, crucify him, crucify him, you know, there's a lot a person can endure if they're surrounded by friends, if they're supported, you can endure a lot of hardship. Jesus had to go through that almost completely abandoned. The crowds that welcomed him and cheered him on were, were part of the crowds that sent him to the cross, even though, and it was God's will, and Jesus knew it. But wouldn't it have been easier for them to be saying, Thank you for doing this, Lord. I wish you didn't have to, but thank you, because there's no other way. And, and be weeping there and thanking him while he's dying. But no, they're laughing. They're, they're plucking his beard out. They're throwing things at him. Expressing their anger. Pouring out all this venom on him while he is answering their prayer. Taking their sin. Carrying it to the cross. And dying their death. So when we cry out, Hosanna. Praise and worship team, you can be coming on up here. When we cry out, Hosanna. Remember a couple things. Remember, number one, we are not just saying, that's not just another way of saying praise the Lord. Hosanna is a heart's cry for salvation. And when we cry out Hosanna, when we cry out for salvation, let us be humble enough to allow God to show us what it is he wants to save us from rather than us dictating to God, I want you to save me from this, but leave this alone. We'd be like the, uh, the, the, the gatherings, you know, that we want you to come over here. Thank you for delivering this guy of his demons, but don't mess with our pigs, right? Let God have the say. Let him dictate what he's, he's Lord. That's what we want, isn't it? We want salvation without lordship. We're just not offered it that way. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.